Welcome to this episode of Law Girl. I'm Jasmine Dea coming to you from my personal injury law firm, Jasmine Dea & Company, located in Midtown Toronto. Joining me is Janine Liberatore. She is the founding partner of Hunter Liberatore Law, LLP, with almost 15 years of experience exclusively in labor, employment, and human rights law. Janine has extensive experience providing advice on all human resources issues, including employment standards, collective agreement administration, attendance and performance management, human rights and accommodation, contract drafting and negotiations, workplace investigations, discipline and dismissals. To further her passion for training and teaching, Janine is also a part-time professor at Seneca College teaching alternative dispute resolution. Welcome, Janine. Thank you, Jasmine. It's nice to be here. Nice to have you. So we need to tell everybody first that I have known you since law school days. And in fact, you reminded me before we went to record this podcast that we actually met on the first day of orientation. That's right. At bowling. You mean... Out bowling? Is that what we did? (laughs) Yes. Well, we actually left bowling because uh, we were a little too cool for school. That's right. And we had some fun. But (laughs) maybe we should turn our attention to law and not all those secrets from back then. (laughs) So, Janine, before we get started, I want to know why you decided to go to law school. What inspired you? Well, when I first started law, um, when I first started undergrad, I actually had aspirations of being a math teacher. But when I figured out that the math class was at 8 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings, it really wasn't going to work with my schedule. So instead, I turned into philosophy, and I took every single philosophy course I could, which I... kind of led me to law because it's looking at a problem from different perspectives and then advocating your side of the of the position so you don't you didn't want 8 a.m but yet we are recording this podcast at 8 a.m and everything that could go wrong has gone wrong on this monday morning yes but at that (laughs) time i was 20 and now i'm a tad older and so i'm better at my 8 a.m's now uh Based on today, not so, but we will continue on with the podcast. So my understanding is that you practice in the area of labor and employment, mostly management side, but some employee side. Before we go into what it is you do, can we define the difference between these two sides? We learn about it in law school, but I don't think people really know in the general public that there are two sides and even within law lawyers outside of employment law i'm not sure they really grasp the difference right so there's there's two differences actually so first of all you've got management side and you have employment side so on the management side we represent employers and we help them make decisions with regards to the employment relationship whether it's starting the agreements terminating the employment investigations and all of those things so From management side, I represent the employer. Then you have employee side, labor and employment law, and that's when you represent the employee. Most often when they've been terminated and they've received a severance package and they want to see if they can get a greater severance package. You also have employee issues when it comes to human rights complaints, harassment investigations, or just issues that they're having in the workplace. Then there's one more difference that everybody really doesn't understand, which is the difference between labor and employment law. So employment law is the non-unionized context. So that's in the civil courts, and that's when the employee is not represented by a union. Labor law is when they're represented by a union, and so it becomes labor relations instead of employee relations. And do you handle both? I do. I do, and I love both. Um, 
for a long time, I did only uh, employment law because I worked for the banks and things like that, which is historically non-unionized. Then I was at Bell Canada for seven years, and there I did a ton of labor law, and it reintroduced it to me, and I love it. It's so much fun. You've been practicing for the same amount of time as me, which is yes. about 15 years. Yep. And during that time, do you feel that unions are becoming obsolete, or are they still going strong? Unions are never going to lose their foothold. They're just never going to. There is certainly a group of society that require representation to ensure that their rights are properly protected. I find that unions, like every other corporation, are also out there to make money. And so their their philosophies, the underpinnings of them are to assist employees and things like that. But they're also a corporation. So they're out there to try and make money and uh, and build their empire through one employee at a time. Do you feel that one province in Canada stands out as having more unions than others? Well, I'm not sure about the union makeup. When we talk about litigation, we find that Ontario is certainly the most litigious. Um, BC, there's a lot of litigation as well. Quebec is its own entire world with its civil code. So it's quite different. But generally speaking, Ontario's the most litigious. So it's not quite answering your question, but kind of. <laughs> That's okay. Um, how do you choose how do you choose this area of practice? I mean, did you fall into it? Is it something that you derived an interest um, towards while you were in law school? Well, I definitely fell into it. Actually, one of our friends uh, encouraged me to participate with her in a second year moot, which is one of the debate competitions that we do in law school. And it was the labor and employment one. It was held by Hicks Morley, which was the firm that I actually ended up going to. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do this. Why not? I like advocacy. So it was a chance to do more advocacy. And then I found out that it's actually a really interesting area of the law. It's like criminal. It's like family. It's one of those really big relationships in your life. But it's less emotional, right, in the sense that family law is awfully depressing because it's a lot of divorce and disillusion of love and things like that. And criminal (laughs) is, well, it's crime. So labor, another huge relationship in your life. It's one of your biggest ones. And you spend 60% of your time at least at your employers. And so the fact patterns that come out of it is unbelievable. Do you find that with your work, you are taken, well, I shouldn't say now because in COVID things have changed, but do you find yourself taken outside the office to courts and tribunal hearings or are you at the office or is there a split? And I I know right now you're not really going to these places, but pre-COVID, what was it like for you? Well, so we are all over the place. Uh, we We do work in the office a bit, but we also are in civil litigation quite a bit. And when you have a labor practice, there are a ton of hearings. And that's where I love it the most, as I love the hearing work. But generally speaking, we're on our feet a lot. We're all over the place, whether it's at mediations or negotiations or um, any kind of any kind of civil proceeding like discoveries and things like that. And then the whole labor world is all all the same, but less formal. So, but we're all over the place. And we also do a strategic component too, right? We're in the office, we're writing contracts, creating policies, putting commission plans into paper form, right? Everyone has these visions. It's my job to write it on paper and make sure that it's binding for the parties. I give them strategy when it comes to dealing with issues all the time. So I'm often on the phone with people. 
it's a it's a very varied practice. Who are your clients? Well, um, I have had a lot of hats over the years. I've worked at big firms, small firms, in-house, everywhere. So that means I've had all types of clients. On management side, I've had big power plants, uh, communication companies, manufacturers, small companies, retail, spas, medispas, everything from that perspective. Then I've also had the chance to do employee side work as well. So I've represented employees from all different, um, all different types of job positions, executives, uh, owners of former funeral homes, <laughs> uh, all, all sorts of people. What about now at your firm that you've just started quite recently? Congratulations on that. Thank you. What are you providing in terms of services um, have they changed from what you were doing previously? So we opened our law firm March 2nd, 10 days before everything shut down. And so we've really only been practicing under a COVID lens right now. And it has been so different. Uh, I'm very thankful for my law partner because she's brilliant. And when the pandemic happened, this is an employment crisis. And so laws were coming into place all over the place, like Two weeks ago, the Ministry of Labor just dropped something via tweet, which significantly changes how we apply specific leaves that are relevant to everybody right now. So my life post during this pandemic would be going into the office, trying to understand what's changed, what are the new laws, how are these regulations going to be interpreted. Then myself and my law partner, we would sit there and we would barter and debate and try and figure out what that meant for our clients. And then we'd have to be like, okay, ready to go. And we'd open up the phone lines and start applying the brand new law that came in the day before. And we were like, okay, we're experts on this now and we're going to apply it and figure out how our management side lawyer, I mean, clients can figure out how to deal with these new restrictions and limitations and protected leaves. It's been really interesting. There are certain areas of practice that have gotten busier during COVID and certain that have gotten a lot slower. It seems that your area might have gotten busier. First, you have to keep up with all these new laws that are coming out on quite frequent basis. And then on top of that, you have a lot of individuals needing your services to know what they're entitled to and what their rights are because businesses out there are just not thriving the way they used to be so how have you how has your day changed like you're not you're not going to these proceedings now so are, are things being done remotely like in my world at first we had nothing going on. Everything got canceled. And then we learned, and the court reporter's offices learned, how to do things via Zoom. So my mediations, my pre-trials, and my discoveries are all conducted through Zoom. Some WebEx. (laughs) Um, There's one insurer that only uses WebEx, and it's kind of irritating. Uh, But, you know, everything is as moved to that platform. And in fact, I actually believe that some of my very simple discovery proceedings are going to stay on this platform because we're saving so much time, which saves money at going to locations for very simple matters. I can't believe how much time I was spending in the car and how exhausted it was making me. Um, But getting back to you, uh, how has that changed? Like, are you still doing hearings and proceedings? And is it being done 
done remotely or have you started going back into physical locations now? Thankfully, no. <laughs> um, we love it. So when the pandemic hit, exactly the same. Hearings just stopped. Everything got delayed because everyone didn't know how to deal with things. And then exactly the same. So all of our uh, employment mediators and things like that, they got onto Zoom platforms uh, we started doing a lot, uh, everything on Zoom. So I've got CPC court tomorrow on Zoom. I have no idea how that's going to work, but it takes out so much of the time. You know, usually when you have to go, CPC is scheduling court for mm-hmm. motions and things like that. And usually it's a waste of time because you have to drive downtown. You have to wear your suit. You have to find parking. You've got to find parking. (laughs) You've got to stand around in the courts until it's your turn. And then you have 10 minutes before, before the judge to schedule a date for a motion. And that's the whole purpose of all of that time that you've spent. And now I just have to click on to the Zoom meeting at 9.30. I'm going to expect that I'm going to sit in a waiting room for a long time, but I can do other work. I'm not charging my clients a fortune for me to go sit around in a courthouse or to send a junior to the courthouse. And they hate when you do that because they want the person that it's their schedule. So well, it's I, shortened so much. I used to love going to trial scheduling court when I was an articling student as well as an associate because I would hang out, I would meet people, but I would waste my entire day there. And there were some days where I was actually stressed out because I had a lot of work to do because I was at the bottom of the totem pole. So I was doing all the drafting and figuring out how to do all the drafting. Um, But there was a social aspect and networking aspect that I loved. And some of those people that I met back then, I still am in touch with now. And, you know, not only on a social level, but also professionally, I can ask them, you know, what are your thoughts on this? So I feel there's positive and positive and negative on that brainstorming networking component. I a hundred percent agree. Um, we had the exact same thing when it came to our mediations and our labor arbitrations. Cause we'd always go to the same place. We had this one place network and then that's we where we would had, go. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, also Atchison and Denman, which is now really just labor and exactly, you know, you'd get there, you'd go to the kitchen, you'd catch up with everybody, you know, while you're waiting for the other side to come back with their position, you're hanging out in the middle. I would also start negotiating on other files. I'd be like, Hey, I sent you a settlement proposal. I haven't heard from you. And they would say, Oh, I must've overlooked it. Or I was going to get back to you. I'm like, so do you have instructions? Like we would, you know, it was an opportunity to connect and follow up with people in a more informal setting. So I miss that. But yeah, the positive is we're not stretched for time and we're not looking for parking and we're not uh, stressed stressed out because we've lost all this time. Exactly. So it's definitely an adjustment. But what what you're saying about scheduling, I, I 100% agree. We would now, I'm sending someone, whether it's a student or an associate, to schedule and they would spend all day there. Exactly. It's and you can't really do very, you can't do very much. No, because you're sitting around and they never have Wi-Fi. And, and you're not allowed really to be on your device. You're not exactly. supposed to be. Exactly. So it's a huge waste of time. So I'm excited to see what it's like tomorrow. I'm going to do it myself because we're a brand new firm and but it's also good so i have a rule like i don't assign things to people until i know how to do it myself yeah so you always want to know so that well i know i know how to go to cpc do you know how to do it remotely i don't see that's what i mean so it's gonna be it's gonna be a new experience but everything so far has been has been very successful so i'm excited to test it out tomorrow 
Give us a story about an interesting client or interesting situation that you've encountered through your practice pre-COVID or post, whatever. Give us something. Give us some juice. That is a very difficult question. There are so many things I'm like, wow, what's appropriate for me to talk about? So (laughs) one of the ones that I was thinking of, I've got a couple under my sleeve. Every day we have something ridiculous that happens and you're like, really? And then they decided to do that and you're like, why? So I, one of the ones was one of my favorite arbitrations was we, we had this case and they had fired these five men, these five large, large, like not overweight, but I mean like larger men, they were in their fifties. And the reason why they were fired was because they were all the way at the very far back of a warehouse in a teeny tiny furnace room that was four by eight in size four guys, four by eight feet space, that's tight. And it was super smoky and super skunky. And the best answer (laughs) that they could give us was, oh, we were playing poker. And I'm like, you were playing poker in there, were you? I'm like, where where were the cards? And so there, there was no cards. But unfortunately, we settled it. So I didn't get to put them on the stand and really make them squirm because it would have been a lot of fun. Um, so that's one. I was thinking of another one uh, where during termination meetings, you know, they are, they're always taken by surprise when their employment is being terminated, right? Like you never know that it's your termination meeting before it happens. So it was this one termination meeting and it was with this lady. She was married. She was probably late 40s, early 50s. And throughout the termination meeting, she was acting really strange. And she's like, can I just take my phone? Can I take my phone? And, and the HR people are like, no, I'm sorry. It's our policy. We take the phone with us. It's our property. And so we take it. And she's like, but I really need to empty the phone. Can I please take my phone? Home? Oh, God. Did she have pictures? And then, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so then they had them suspicious. And so they opened this phone. And it was when I was working in-house. So they're like, Janine, do you want to see this? And I'm like, no, I don't. Because it was multiple male genitalia, like so many different male genitalia pictures. And this was not her. No, this, this was, was well, cause it, she's exactly. a female. <laughs> yeah. And there was and she was a married female. So there was a ton of different pictures of male genitalia. I think that the first word rhymes with the second when you say pick. But anyways, uh, so that that was pretty funny one. But every day it's something new. You know, I was telling my admin assistant about nesting, nesting. So if you fall asleep at your job, it's one thing, right? Like, oops, I, I dozed off at my desk. That's bad. But <laughs> then there's like a whole extra level of falling asleep at the job, which we call nesting. And 100% there's case law out what there. What is nesting? Nesting is where you're like, okay, here is a storage room that people rarely go into. So I'm going to bring a pillow and I'm going to lay down some actually boxes. Do that? I am not kidding. Lay but I thought that was just on television. So it's like, comfortable. Get myself a little blanket. Like sleeping bag? And then like they go camping? to sleep. Yeah, people go to sleep. I'm sure people listening to this right now are like, I totally did that. So yeah, and then you get caught. And so next is this like at night like this is now they move in or is this like during the job for a break like well, what it's is this during working hours right so it's disciplinable conduct because it's during working hours you're expected to be performing your position and not sleeping in the storage you, room right but it's a, an extra level of culpability because when you kind of just doze off at your job maybe you're working midnights okay not good definitely not appropriate but not super bad either but when you're intentionally going somewhere, hiding somewhere, getting a pillow, pulling up a blanket. 
it's like a whole extra level of disciplinable conduct. I think um, as soon as you leave today, I'm going to go check my storage rooms and furnace room. Definitely. <laughs> Something I had not considered doing. <laughs> Under desks. I know. But- <laughs> <laughs> You're like, why is there a blanket and pillow here? Yeah, exactly. It's not mine. Now you know. <laughs> Interesting. Good to know. <laughs> so a couple of questions to help our listeners and to help me. Um, what... What are employers allowed to do with respect to cameras? Cameras. Okay, that's a good question. So cameras can never be um, hidden. They can't be hidden cameras unless it's because there's a reasonable suspicion of something problematic happening. But generally speaking, like take, for example, your law office that we're sitting in right now. It's beautiful. It's got tons of windows. Maybe you have some valuables in here. So perhaps it's justifiable for you to be putting a big camera in the middle, like right in the corner where everybody can see it because you're watching a money box or some really high tech equipment and things like that. That's appropriate so long as it's out in the open, but it can't be angled in a way so that you can be watching people um, and ensuring they're being productive. You can't be like spying on your employees because although it might not be technically illegal, all um, triers of fact, whether they're arbitrators or judges, they really frown upon um, management uh monitoring their employees in a COVID, like in a covert way. Um, So generally cameras shouldn't be hidden and they should be there for a certain purpose. And it's not just to make sure if someone's dozing off at their laptop, it should be because you have a theft issue or like. Well, what if you have suspicions about an employee leaving early, for example, like pre-COVID, I wasn't here during business hours a lot because I was at discoveries and mediations Mm -hmm. and pre-trials and not here. And there was an employee in the past and I was quite confident that she was taking really long breaks because I would contact her when I was at court saying, can you please send me this document? You know, I forgot it or I didn't realize I needed it or can you check my schedule because it's not pulling up on my phone like I can't see. Um, Little things like that. And I, I knew she wasn't at her desk and there was always excuses. So longer breaks. I also thought she was cutting out early when other people wouldn't notice. And so I did go back and check the cameras. Was I not supposed to do that? No, that's fine. As long as your cameras are there. Like everyone knows they're there. They're in common spaces. And that's honestly not the purpose. It's more about, you know, someone breaking in or more of a safety issue. So yes, you can view view footage for specific reasons. Uh, My advice is always to try and find less intrusive measures first. So um, sometimes you can watch like swipe cards. That's one of the ways mm-hmm. um, I've worked for a lot of companies where they have those um, those turnstiles you have to get through. So you can always monitor that when they go in and out of the parking garage, things like that. I know those don't apply to you, but I always try and find less intrusive measures first. Mm-hmm. But if you have a reasonable suspicion, don't forget I added the word reasonable. Yeah. If you have a reasonable suspicion, then fine. You can go back, you can look at that kind of data to determine whether there's an issue mm-hmm. there. It's fine to do it for that, but it shouldn't be hidden cameras. They really dislike that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it should be there for another purpose, generally speaking, like if there's theft or break-ins and stuff like that, or protection of goods. Like, you know, I think about the fridge cases. Do you mean fridge cases? I've what do you done? mean? What's a fridge case? A fridge case <gasps> is when people steal other people's food. People get really upset about those kind of things. People do that? Oh, yeah. That's so disgusting. I know. Who knows how they made it? But 
that, you know, I think about the fridge cases where then they're like, can we put a video camera on the fridge? I'm like, well, I guess you can. Well, I know uh, that we haven't had food theft in our fridges over the years, but we have had people using other people's condiments. Or cutlery. Cutlery is another really popular thing to steal at workplaces. Oh. Yes. So Interesting. Well, you know what? I don't understand why we're always low on forks. Yes. Well, Where I'm are the forks going? They're like, going are, home with is people. Really? <laughs> yes. I was like, are they yes. throwing the forks away? Like, who would want these forks? They're cheap. They're from yeah. a big box store. I bought them for the office. They're not, you know, high end. Why would anyone steal a fork? Exactly. Yeah, no. hmm. it's another one of those things that goes missing. Well, stationary. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sta- stationary. I, I'm... Pleased to say that we don't have that issue, but the fork issue has been an ongoing issue for years. Yeah. You've just solved a mystery. Yes, Thank you. Mystery. Thank you for that. I'm glad I can do good. <laughs> um, question. One more question. Then yep. I'll stop getting all this free legal advice Go from you. <laughs> so an employee of mine, and I'm sure this is not just me. I'm sure there's many people in this situation. Um, I had to lay off right. due to... COVID changing things and not having a job for her anymore because her job pretty much didn't exist. So she was on layoff. And at first I thought it was going to be a couple of weeks, like many people. And the weeks continued, turned into months. And it's come to a point now where I recognize that, uh, and I just told her recently, I said, you know, I actually don't think I'm going to be able to hire you back anytime soon. And that hurts me because even telling people, telling my employees that I had to lay them off, I was holding back tears. Of course, it's way worse for them, but it was a hard day for me. And I view myself as responsible for my employees, not just on a professional level, but on a personal level. Like they are my firm family. Mm -hmm. And to say- food on their tables. That's right. You know, and- Giving them healthcare. (laughs) Okay, don't make me feel worse than I already feel. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, okay. Got it. Already know. Already noted. Um, So I had to tell her because I didn't want to hold her up either. I wanted her to try and pursue other opportunities because I don't know when I will have her back. And it came to a point where I, I've now told her, you know, but now I'm working out the severance. Right. And so I want to know what is my responsibility as an employer with respect to severance and calculating severance during the layoff period during COVID? Well, so there's two standards, right? So we've had the original standard, which was before COVID, layoffs were layoffs. And if you place someone, so for example, if you had placed someone on layoff, March 1st, and then decided that there was no job for them to come back to April 15th, before the pandemic, their termination date would be March 1st. The original day that you place them on layoff would be their termination date. But now it's a little different because if it's a layoff due to the pandemic, if it's related to the pandemic is the reason why you place them on layoff, it's actually a job protected leave. And it's defined as um, infectious disease emergency leave. We call it idle leave, um, and they are idle in the sense. So idle leave is a protected leave. And the way that I explain it to people to make it as easy as possible is it's like maternity leave. It comes with the same job protections that maternity leave has. And so technically, they are on a job protected leave until January of next year. And so technically during that time, you can't terminate their employment. There's an obligation to seek 
um, comparable employment for them at the end of the leave or give them back their job. If their job isn't there, then you're supposed to look for comparable employment for them. And then if there isn't comparable employment, then the termination date is actually the end of the idle leave instead of how it used to be when it was a normal layoff. And so the introduction of this legislation has drastically changed how we define layoffs. First of all, we never did layoffs before. Like, who are we kidding? Employers rarely uh, implemented layoffs. Unless, unless it was like a mass layoff, right? Well, in, well, okay, So, but that's a permanent layoff. So that's just determination. Okay. But when temporary layoffs before this, wow, I advised clients on that very rarely because you only really saw that in seasonal type work, manufacturing work where they'd have big surges in manufacturing and then it would drop back down. That's really the only time. But corporations, you know, like corporate service type um, positions. Or law firms. Yeah. When did you ever lay someone off in a law firm? So layoffs alone have been such an interesting area of the law for us because there's this whole... There's this whole debate that all plaintiff lawyers are just waiting for the courts <laughs> to open. They cannot wait because it's constructive dismissal or a breach of contract. Because if you don't have layoff provisions in the agreement, it's a breach of contract. doesn't matter that it's in the ESA. So the introdu- introduction of idle leave has changed the landscape drastically. That I digress. I'm sorry. But to answer your original question, technically it's a protected leave. The argument that you know you've let this person go is the fact that there really is no job that is going to be available at the end of this the weakness in that position is that you can't anticipate what you're going to look like in january and so it's it's risky territory that you're in right now in the sense of you know terminating someone during a protected leave but if the job is truly eliminated then there's certainly an argument to be made that it's appropriate and you would negotiate the severance on the basis of the last day in which you inform them that you're actually not going to be bringing your back. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a lot of people, a lot of employers are going to need to have their employment contracts revised in light of this situation. In light of that. And there was also a really interesting case that just came out as well that, um, that blew apart termination clauses. Cause that's the thing that we're always fighting about is, is the termination clause in the employment agreement enforceable? If you, when you think about labor and employment law, the entire purpose why it's been created is to protect employees. So employers can be frustrated because everything is is there to protect employees. It's not in favor of the employer. So courts are always looking for ways to get out of termination clauses because they don't want to limit people's entitlement at time of termination because it's when it's at a time when they are in most need, right? They've just lost their income. They have to make sure that the lights stay on in their house and there's food on the table for their kids and shoes on their feet. Like, you know, those are the things that happen when you lose a job is those kind of questions. And so courts are always looking for ways to find that a termination clause is not enforceable, whether they signed it after they started or it wasn't drafted very well or it's old law that it was drafted on. So I was saying that there was this brand new case that came out and it's kind of shattered everything for us in the sense that um, in what happened in that case is they called into question the cause component of the termination language as opposed to the without cause. Most of the time people terminate people without cause. We have these extra things, sorry, I'm getting a little too geeky here, but we have these severability clauses that we always put in these contracts that say, if one of them doesn't work, 
cut it out court mm -hmm. it won't be valid but everything else is going to work mm -hmm. but th we had this case that said no we're not going to use the severability clause if your cause provision is not up to the standard that we expect the whole, the whole thing, thing is fails oh my goodness and cause and cause is that language, under appeal it's uh <laughs> i don't know if it's under appeal but it was it it was a because that's pretty significant it's a problematic decision for us because it's ignoring some really um, fundamental contract law um, principles that mm -hmm. we believe are important. So to answer your question, yes, uh, employment agreements really need to be reviewed. And it's not just about the language that you put into it. When I advise my clients with employment agreements, it's about how you enter into them too. There has to be fresh consideration when you have someone um, sign a new employment agreement. Mm -hmm. And that happens a lot, right? If you give someone a raise, if you give them a new bonus structure, there's all different times in the employment relationship that new consideration is going to the employee. So those are those opportunities where you should be getting your employment agreements reviewed cleaning them up because the case law keeps changing and getting them in there with fresh consideration so that it's enforceable at the end of the relationship. Well, it's like you just made me sorry, go ahead. It's like marriage, right? At the beginning of the marriage, it's so rosy and wonderful <laughs> and everybody is in love. Are you saying you're not? Uh, <laughs> lovely husband. Um, but no one's entering into contracts at the beginning of the marriage. Yeah. But then you really need them at the end of the marriage when everything falls apart. You want things to dictate it. It's the same with employment relationships. You know, they're wonderful and rosy when you bring them in. And then when you want to terminate their employment, if you don't have good paper between you, then you're leaving it up to the courts to determine what they're going to get. So I was saying that you just made me realize that, like, I've been using the same employment contract mm -hmm. for years Yes, at my firm. And I uh, probably shouldn't just be relying on it and I should be That's reviewing right. it. Forget yes. COVID, like just regularly exactly. I should be. And how often regular should I be looking at this? Well, with regular clients, what we do is we give them updates. It's like when that new decision came out, I think it was, well, we're in a time warp. I can't even remember when it came out, like a month ago. Mm -hmm. So I immediately get out to all my clients and I'm like, heads up. We need to look at that termination clause again. We've got some new revisions that we might want to consider. And a half of the time you look at it and you're like, okay, your agreement's good. You know, and I, that costs 20 minutes. But you realize that an employer, even though I'm a lawyer, as an employer, I look at these emails and I'm like, Ugh, I, I don't want to pay. A million, I don't uh, want to pay for a new contract. Like, who cares about this one change? Well, you can pay now or you can pay later. Later, exactly, choice. right? Okay, one last question. Okay. Um, does every position need an employment contract? So yes. what about the guy working at Home Depot? Does yes. he need one? Well, Home Depot is unionized. Okay, so forget Home Depot example. Okay, what about a person working at a bar? Yes, yes, there should be employment agreements because it should it, it should explain a lot of things, right? How are the tips pooled? How are they dispersed? Um, what's your hourly rate? What are your job duties, right? Especially with a bar. Hey, there's a lot of back duties that people don't want to do, right? Remember rolling those, like uh, the, the cutlery, things like that. But, you know, how much notice is required in the event that you want to terminate the relationship? Do you have the ability to lay them off? Yes, all those things are important. And, you know, when you create an employment agreement, it's different. If it's an executive, it's going to have some really significant clauses in there talking about, you know, incapacity and stuff like that. Like those ones are really serious, big bonus plans. But even with employees that are working in a bar, they're still really important terms and conditions of employment. So obviously that employment agreement is going to be a lot shorter and 
you know, everyone loves to get it on one page, but the font mm-hmm. can't be too small, you know. <laughs> Let's not make it font eight. But, you know, it's a one pager. It's a two pager for that kind of role. Whereas when you get into the executive ones, it's 15 pages. But yeah. every employment relationship should be governed by an agreement or you're just you're leaving it to the courts to decide at a later date. I didn't realize when I asked you on my podcast that I would be asking you all these questions that are so helpful for me on a personal level. So thank you. Thanks for coming. You obviously have a wealth of knowledge in this area, and I also can feel your passion. You light up when you're giving your answers, and I love that because it reminds me of how much I love what I do, and I love seeing it when other people have such a passion in what they do. Thanks so much for coming, Janine. I appreciate all the information. My pleasure.